0: Hey, thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we're located across Coulangatta, Brisbane, and Robina. And We exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us in a series we've titled, Rhythms. And isn't it true that we all structure our lives in one way or another, and those rhythms we adopt, those habits we entertain, are not just things that we do, but are all things that do something to us. In this series, we will be asking the question, who are you becoming? And together, we'll explore how our spiritual formation and spiritual disciplines can lead us to become more like Jesus. We pray that this message is a blessing. Let's read the word of the Lord together. This is Mark 2 from verse 13 to verse 17. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a sick, who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I found myself, as that reading was going forth, responding in my mind to the question, why does he, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And in my mind, I just felt the words come out, you know, internally. Because he's the best, you know? I just, I don't know, I'm just gonna throw that out there as we kick off our new year. He's the best. Uh, I just think that about Jesus. My name's Alex, and I'm the pastor here at New Life Brisbane, and I'm not alone, actually. Uh, we've got a wonderful pastoral team here in this church that oversee the life and the love and the discipleship of this community. And just before I jump into this afternoon sermon and talk, just want to make note uh, and celebrate something and honor someone. And that person is Lauren, who just read the scriptures for us. Uh, Lauren has been on team as a staff member uh, in this community for uh, just over a year now. And today marks her last Sunday uh, as a staff member. And in Lauren's time, small groups have grown. People have become more like Jesus. She's refined some of our systems that were a bit chaotic before she came, but because of her presence and excellence, she actually sort of stewarded them into something that's actually comprehensive and comprehensible. And so we're sad to see Lauren step away from staff, but we're excited that this isn't the end for her journey at New Life Brisbane. And so she'll be around, part of the family, part of the lifeblood of this community. But can I just ask us, just to show some honour, some appreciation and love to Lauren as she finishes up on staff... as Lauren finishes today, just be it noted that she oversaw small groups and communities here in this church. And so if you've been impacted in any of those areas or the myriad of other ways that Lauren seemed to make herself permeate this community with life and love, just love on her this afternoon. She's going on break for a little bit. She's gonna have holidays with family. And it's a really wonderful time of rest for her, but we'll see her again in a few weeks. But just love on her, show her why you appreciate her and just tell her all the good things that uh, God did through her in your life in this community. And we get to look forward to more. Praise God. I want to pray, and then we're going to jump into the scriptures. So let's pray, if that's all right. One last time. It's church, so surely it's okay. Father, we want to hear from you this afternoon. Father, if what we hear this afternoon is old, would you make it fresh? If it's new, help us not love it because it's novel, but because it's you. Lord, help me forget anything unhelpful and call to mind that which you want to say, because we believe, Lord, it's not me who speaks this afternoon, but maybe by your Spirit, your very self, and so prick our conscience, pierce our imagination, touch our hearts, speak to our minds, and Father, give us tender hearts to respond to what you say to us, because it's in Jesus' name that we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Just another warm welcome from me, if that's okay. if you're new in this community. uh, And we would love you just to take next steps. The QR code is one of the ways you can do that. But also, man, just chat to some of our host team, or even me, or some of the leaders that you see up on team here. And if a QR code's not your thing, I'll fill it out for you. We'd just love you to get plugged into this community. But hey, it's a new year, 2023. Who would have thought, hey, 2023? How are you all feeling about 2023? Sometimes, when we gather on a Sunday as a leadership team, I get everyone to do like the thumbometer. It's a really helpful practice. Just thought we might start the year this way. Thumbs up if you're feeling like 10 out of 10, thumbs down, obviously the opposite, and then thumbs to the side if you're feeling okay. Just want to see where we're at. Nice and high, where are we go? What do we got? Hey, a couple of thumbs. All right bit of potential. Oh, there's some side thumbs in the room. Yep, no worries. Okay. So if anyone's less than halfway, those who are like up top, just like note them and just sort of like run at them for prayer later, you know, make them feel really nervous about the fact that they joined us here at New Life Brisbane this afternoon. But it's funny, right? 2023, new year, new me. And there's a bunch of sermons that would be preached with those very words as the openers around our city, around our country, and indeed the world. Because this is a moment It's pregnant with possibility. There's a bunch of things people are thinking through. Lauren mentioned budget before, money, finances. People are thinking health, wealth, happiness, those kinds of things. And when it comes to New Year, it it comes to making resolutions. I did a bit of research this year just to sort of see how resolutions are being made, both in our country and across the world. And I found some staggering facts. Finder.com.au, which is sort of a a website that helps to to compare different uh, financial options, whether it's mortgages or those kinds of things, Um, they did some research. They they surveyed 1,000-plus people, and from 2022, they noted that not all generations make goals the same that actually baby boomers were the least likely to make New Year's resolutions. I won't poll us, you know, let's just let the the, the survey do its own work here. About 52% of baby boomers want to make New Year's resolutions. So if you're sitting here, you know, one out of two in that generation, don't try and mark it out, might be unhelpful. But 52%, whereas millennials and Gen Z, it's about the 85 to 91% mark. And the two biggest things that people would set resolutions towards in Australia is health, fitness, and wealth, finance, two biggest things, why? Because with a new year comes the possibility of a new me, pregnant with potential and possibility. It's what we do at this time. The new year's resolution actually dates back to around 4,000 BC and it it's, finds its home in the Babylonians. It's actually a religious thing that gave birth to the act of making resolutions. And when this time comes around every year, it doesn't matter what your calendar year is, there's always this sense of a new year at some point. People wanna make resolutions. But there's signs of this sort of culture failing um a few years ago strava uh the fitness app which i know people in our church really enjoy in 2019 they surveyed like 800 million people users data on their activity at this time of the year and they they put together their prediction for what they called quitters day now quitters day is, according to the data and the way that it sort of matches up and intersects, is their best prediction for when people are going to give up on all their health and sort of fitness goals. And they, they tracked it and they said quitter's day most years from 2019 onwards is most likely be the second Friday in the year. So, we're not there yet, but this Friday, what are you going to do? Quitter's Day. Who are you going to be? The signs of this failing. And I think it's because we live in a post-COVID world. There's a trend this year. I was reading a news.com.au article. Don't do it. But I was reading one of these articles, and they're talking about the way in which resolutions have been inflected, given the COVID world that we're sort of coming out of. And something that's really popular this year is not setting resolutions, sort of achievable metric-based goals to try and tick off as the year goes forward, but ins and outs. So there's an influencer. Uh, a fitness guru who made her sort of uh, fame on YouTube, Sarah's Day. Haven't watched her stuff, read an article about her. She's famous now on TikTok, and her ins for this year is, let me, let me read this out, Lindsay Lohan, Hubba Bubba, carbs, and bed before 9pm. So that's what she thinks will be in for her this year. That's what she wants to do more of this year. But her outs, these are her outs, Elon Musk, Crocs, mullets, and bubble tea. She wants less of those this year. No shame if you've got a mullet, thinking about growing one myself. Another person, uh, Billy Edda, she writes for the Sydney Morning Herald. And her in's this year, uh, she put it, I, I think she said, um, like, cro- like butter crocs, which in other words are like the little containers that you put butter in to keep it soft on the bench. For her, that's in this year. That's what 2023 is going to be about. But what's out? is brown fitness wear. So no judgment, but that's what she's saying. A post-COVID world. There's this sense, as you read some of the literature, I don't use that as an academic term, there's this sense, as you read articles, (laughs) as you listen to people think through how they think through their year, there's this sense that actually resolutions are so 2019. Why? And the reason is because in a post-COVID world, we just can't predict anything. We have no idea what's coming. And so what people are talking about is rather than health and wealth, they're talking about well-being. Arthur C. Brooks is a columnist for The Atlantic, and he, a few years ago in 2020, um, just at the turn of COVID, he titled an article, New Year's Resolutions That Will Actually Lead to Happiness, Set Goals to Improve Your Well-Being, Not Your Wallet or Your Wasteline. Raven Smith from Vogue, five days ago, She wrote this, listen to this, I just think life is so chock-a-block with negative happenings, war, violence, political upheaval, the unstable climate, that the last thing you deserve is punishment for when you don't keep your regime. You don't need a grueling regime, we're living through one. You needn't feel guilty every time you pick up your phone, you don't pick up your phone, or eat dairy, or forget to call your mum. One other person said this, they said, I'm not making resolutions this year. I don't think you should either. Resolutions are conflicting because a previous culture would say, I am what I do, let's set the year with targets and goals, health, wealth, happiness. And now there's this new culture based after COVID that are saying, I don't know if I've got it in me. I don't know if the world's predictable enough. And so rather than aiming at what I do with my life, I'm just going to aim to have the right feelings and protect myself enough from all the chaos out there. And so we start our year. Maybe you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, Maybe you're here and you're just checking out this Christianity thing. And here's the key argument, the big idea, the one thing I want you to hear today. That in the Christian story, it's not what we do that matters most. And sadly, encouragingly, bit of a challenge, it's not what we feel that matters most. That what matters most in the Christian story is who you're becoming that the central question you can ask as a follower of Jesus as you start this year is not, not just how will I protect myself from all the chaos out there, that's a helpful question, not what will I do with this year so I can achieve and succeed and climb the ladder that I've set for myself, whether it's in the fitness or the finance that are buckets of life, but how will I follow Jesus? Who will I become? And that's why that big idea is what gives birth to this series, Rhythms. And Rhythms, Sort of a catch-all term to refer to our calendars, our habits, all the things that make up the mundane act of life. So if I was to ask you, what are your rhythms? You should very easily be able to start in a mundane kind of way. You should be like, well, you know, Mondays I wake up at 7, get my coffee. Check my phone. And you rattle through all the mundane things that make up your life. These are your rhythms. And the interesting thing about rhythms is not that only a few of us have them, it's that all of us have them. And deeper than that, all of them shape us in particular ways. Which means the question so much for followers of Jesus or just humans in general is not whether you have rhythms or not, but what they are and how they're shaping you. Because all the rhythms we have, all the calendars we keep, all the habits we entertain, all the structures of our life, they actually give birth to a certain image of life that we become. And here's the cool thing about being a Christian. It's that the image that we're invited to apprentice after is the person of Jesus. And so when we talk about rhythms, we're talking about all the ways in which our calendars and our habits and our disciplines work against becoming the image of Jesus and all the ways that they can work for becoming the image of Jesus. In short, discipleship. We're talking about discipleship, right? And the goal of this series is to increase our vocabulary around discipleship, to give us tools by which to be intentional with our discipleship, and also to inspire us, whether in small group community, individually, whatever, to become the people that God's called us to be. Rhythms, the habits of the way, that's what we're stepping into. And so as we look at discipleship today, that's my big idea, I wanna walk through three scenes that I think will give us context, a challenge, and a practical invitation. Those scenes are this. The ancient calling of discipleship, the modern failure of discipleship, and the present invitation of discipleship. So if you're a note taker, there's your big headings. I hope they're helpful. There'll be something practical along each way, hopefully. The ancient call of discipleship. Let's read Mark chapter two, verse 13 to 17 again. And at this time, Jesus has just kicked off his ministry. The biographer, Mark, he's like really fast paced when he talks about the life of Jesus as he walked this earth 2,000 years ago. And Mark's big idea is that as he gets from chapter one to chapter eight, he's to convince you that Jesus is the one that we hoped for. And so in doing so, he makes you pay attention to his words. His words are sort of like this political manifesto. Jesus comes out of obscurity into the public scene and what he says matters. So listen to these words. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because he's the best. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I love this. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now, to understand this passage, you've got to go back in time to ancient Jerusalem, which that's basically impossible unless you've got someone just spouting facts up the front. So here we go. No, I won't just do that. But... Really helpful in, like, invitation just to get our minds around this. Discipleship in the Jewish imagination was sort of like the upper echelon educational program for students. Uh, in the Jewish sort of experience, there were three levels to their education. Uh, level one was what they called Beit Sefer, Level two, Beit Talmud. And level three was or Talmudin, which is just two different language ways to say disciple. And so level one, you'd be a young person. You'd probably be between the ages of zero to 12. And your goal as a Beit Sefer was to read, write maths, and probably memorize the first five books of the Bible. If you got there, you got to the next step. The next step was even harder. You're probably between the ages of 12 to 15, and your goal at Pate Talmud is two things, to memorize the entire Old Testament, 39 books. Good luck, modern people. 39 books, can't do it, not even gonna try. Most of the Old Testament, ages 12 to 15. And if you were smart enough, if you were good enough, if you were the best, you'd make it to the third level. And upon getting to the third level, you might be called as a disciple into this final exam and the final exam would grill you on all these different questions people had about how to interpret the Old Testament, what this rabbi thought about that particular passage, and your goal was to get through the exam in such a way that that rabbi who is grilling you would say, awesome, follow me. If you make it through level one, you make it through level two, and you get to level three and you pass the exam, if you're the best, intellectually brilliant, faithful, moral, great character, no one could bring a complaint against you. Follow me. And here's what Jesus does. This is why the Pharisees, the religious elite, have the question. This is why Jesus is the best. Because he finds strangers. And he goes up to them as they are, doesn't give them a checklist. And he just says, follow me. And I love what Jesus does because, someone said it really well when they said it like this, he calls us as we are, but doesn't leave us as we are. And that's the truth of the Christian story. Jesus meets us where we're at, and he calls us to such a high vision of life. In other words, he doesn't dilute the vision that people can have for their lives. But he also removes all the disqualifying factors that would stop them from pursuing the life that he's got available in him. It's called grace. Calls them as they are, doesn't leave them as they are. Follow me. And this is why, this is why when we talk about discipleship, we're not saying that the goal is just to get inside the fold of what we call Christian community. That's wonderful, good, helpful, awesome. But the goal in the imagination of the rabbis and in the teaching of Jesus is actually, concretely, practically, personally, to become like him. In other words, Jesus does not settle for converts. Hear me as I say this, just as I apply this to our lives. Jesus doesn't settle for converts. A convert is someone who says yes, I agree with that idea and I'll, I'll step into this thing we call relationship with God. That's, that's awesome. You can do that by grace through faith. You get into the kingdom of God by no decision, by no act of your own. It's literally God's grace working to meet you where you're at. But so often in the church, we just think that once we're in, we're good, and we just sit in this holding pattern as converted Christians waiting for heaven. But the goal of the Christian life is not to put us in a holding pattern as we wait for heaven. It's to get heaven in and through us for the sake of the world. And that's what we call discipleship. It's to make yourself available to be a conduit for God and his spirit so he would bring his new world, his beauty, his goodness, his justice, and his truth to the world that we find ourselves in. That in other words, God doesn't want to create converts that sit and wait like a barcode that they scan when they get to the pearly gates. God wants to do something in us and through us for the world that we find ourselves in. Maybe I can put it this way. When I think about being a disciple, I think about the invitation for God to critique parts of who I am and to cultivate parts of who I am. Also, I'd be used by him for his glory and the good of the world. That's what discipleship is. One of the things we're really good at as sort of uh, our tradition in the church, what you might call evangelical, Bible-believing, gospel-centered people, we're really good at saying, Jesus has done something so we can be forgiven. That's true. In fact, that's the gospel, that nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Grace. But the beauty of the invitation to discipleship is not that God's just forgiven us. It's that he wants to give us new life. Not that he's just paid for our sins, but he wants to unleash new, good, beautiful justice in the world through us. It's called discipleship. God does not settle for converts. He meets us as converted. But he wants to take us by his spirit to become full-fledged disciples. I love what Dallas Willard says. He says this about discipleship. Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. Isn't that awesome? I know in my life, like let me just reflect on the last sort of one year, there's stresses in my life. And how nice would it be if the stress that came up to me is this external stimuli, if the stress that came to me, I was actually able to respond to like Jesus. Like I had his temperament, I had his character, I had his patience, I had his joy, that there's this sense in which the the character of Jesus from the inside out is overwhelming and overflowing in me. I want that, I want that. And I have to say, just honestly, I'm not that. I'm becoming that. I'll never get there fully, but man, that sounds exciting to me. Like think about my marriage. Man, I'd be a way better husband if I was continually, increasingly becoming like Jesus. His temperament, his relationship with the Father, his love of other people, his centeredness around joy. Man, that'd be good for my marriage. Man, it'd be good for my workplace. You know, someone interrupts you. C.S. Lewis once said, you can tell a lot about a person by how they react when they're interrupted. I'm a terrible person at being interrupted. My life's so important, don't interrupt me. Imagine if I was becoming like Jesus, though. I might be a bit more interruptible. Really great for your workplace. You're working on something important. A colleague comes to you and you say, oh, you're you're not worth my time. I'm working on this really important thing. What if your response was, you're an image bearer of God. You're worth my time just because of who you are. That would happen if you were becoming increasingly so more like Jesus, to become a carbon copy of our rabbi. He says, follow me. Don't settle for conversion. Step into the life of discipleship. It's the ancient call. But there's a modern failure and the modern failure, and I'll try and whip through these little points, is that we're a microwave generation and we think that everything in the life of anything meaningful can just be accessed through a crash course. You wanna learn how to cook, go take a course. You wanna figure out how to, I don't know, even study the Bible. There's courses on studying the Bible and we've got this thing in our information era, in our intellectual age, in our microwave generation where we think if we wanna achieve something, it's gonna happen like that. And the Bible just doesn't have that picture of human transformation. It doesn't think that way about human change. And Jesus doesn't work with that assumption when he calls you to discipleship. And there's two ways that this expresses itself in the life of the church. And as I express these two ways, I don't wanna level it at individuals in the room. I just wanna paint the picture. And like a good story that you read, I'd love you to just think, oh, where do I sit, you know, in that story? What character could be me? And there's this spectrum. You'll see it behind me on the screen. Some people intellectualize the Christian faith. Other people spiritualize the Christian faith. And so when it comes to the question of change or growing as disciples, here's what people on either end of the spectrum could say. If you're someone who intellectualizes the Christian faith, you truly believe that all you need to do to grow as a disciple of Jesus is just learn more facts, this came up really clearly, actually, in our small group. Kath and I run a small group, Roachdale uh, small group, shout out, where you at? And we, we were just chatting, we were talking about life, and someone in our small group who's a new Christian, they said, we asked them, well, I don't even know if we asked them, but they just said, I'm not, I don't know as much as you guys. New Christian, growing in the Christian faith, and they're like, I don't know as much as you guys. Now, on one level, that just blatantly true like we've got more time on the board you know what I mean we've read more Bible but the worst part was that that was negative to her to this person and I remember thinking oh we've done something wrong here we've modeled the fact that to grow in Christian faith or as a disciple is just learning facts about God And there's a problem with this. The problem is, how many facts do we know about God but actually we haven't seen life transformation? This is one of the biggest critiques of a watching world. You think of things that have happened in schools in the last few months. You think of things that have happened in institutions where people are passionate about getting their ideas across but people are curious as to why their lives don't match the ideas they're trying to communicate. Or how many times have you come to church, heard a sermon, felt really convicted but not turned up the next week changed by that conviction of ideas? Here's the point two things. Our faith is a worldview. It has ideas we need to believe. You'll be challenged by those ideas. They'll rock your world. But if you reduce Christianity to ideas and reduce your definition of how to change just to learning more facts, you will forever remain the same. But you'll be able to outpace your life with the way you talk. And that's a problem for a watching world. And it makes Christianity pretty boring, actually, just as an individual. All these facts about God, zero life change. That's what happens if you intellectualize it. But some people want to spiritualize it, and they'll say, man, all we need to do to change, and I've preached this before, but these are different terms for it. All we need to do to change is we just need to encounter God, man. Rock up on Sunday, be met by the Spirit of God in miraculous ways, and then we'll be changed. Now, resonance and dissonance. Connection and critique. Here's the connection. Do we believe that God can move in power? Yes. We think He can do so when we gather. We think He can do so on the streets. We think He can do so in our bedroom. God is a consuming fire. He wants to change us by His Spirit in miraculous ways. But in the language of discipleship, change is a bit more mundane than that. And we shouldn't expect to grow at the pace of the miraculous only when God invites us into the mundane and the rhythms of life that beget the kind of life that Jesus invites us into. Formation happens less by what we think and more by what we do with our lives. And the argument for this is ancient wisdom, modern psychology, the words of Jesus. Aristotle said it like this. He says, we are what we repeatedly do. Ralph Waldo Emerson put it like this. He says, sow a thought, you reap an action. So an action you reap a habit, so a habit you reap a character, so a character you reap a destiny. It takes time. You're more what you do than what you think. A more modern philosopher put it like this. He says there's no formation without repetition, and here's the point. The point is that it's one thing to affirm the Christian worldview, it's another thing to apprentice in the way of Jesus. And could you imagine the power of a community that does both? Right? Internally, how we'd feel, as we'd grow. Externally, what it says to a watching world. Clarity about who God is with our minds. Increasing apprenticeship after Jesus with our bodies and our characters and our lives. Our lives would cause people to ask questions to which Jesus is the answer. And we'd be able to articulate it and embody it. That's the modern failure, but that's the challenge. So the ancient call, the modern failure, and lastly the present invitation. Let me read from John 15, just as I finish up our time here. John 15, verses five to eight. And he says this, I am the vine. This is Jesus talking. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Jesus was a big fan of an agricultural metaphor. He loved taking people's imagination to the mundane things of the day. He'd be walking along the street and someone asked, what's the kingdom of God like? And he'd pick up a mustard seed and he's like, oh, it's probably a bit like this. Or people were asking him questions about what's discipleship look like? And he's like, oh, picture the wine, the wine vine, you know, that we get our grape from every year in the parties in Jerusalem. It's a bit like this You're a branch, I'm the vine. Remain in me. And Jesus' picture of discipleship is not that we try really hard, whether spiritually or intellectually, but it's that we train consistently and make ourselves available to abide in Him. And the language that the church has sort of adopted in response to this passage over the years is to think through what they call a rule of life. And this is the present invitation that we just wanna make as a church. Recently, I I told myself I wouldn't do this, but we laid some lawn, uh, some grass in our backyard, and uh, it's sapphire blue buffalo. If Jesus was to return, I reckon it's the kind of thing we, you know, that would be the red carpet on which He strolls down. And, you know, we laid it out the back, it was a big day, all my neighbors got involved and it was really interesting. We cultivated the grounds before we laid the grass. We turned over the soil, I watered it a lot. I'm really nervous about my water bill. And then we laid the grass after we flattened it out and, you know, three, four weeks later, it's flourishing. We had some leftover pieces and we took the stuff And I just, I was so tired. My back was sore. So I just threw the extra pieces on our front lawn. And you ask my wife, they are not flourishing. And I was thinking, why? Same stuff. You know, maybe a bit less water. I clearly care less. Why? And I was just thinking, oh, the conditions are wrong. I didn't till the soil. Same deposit. Same thing. Hasn't grown. Now... When ancients took this phrase of Jesus, the vine, because they were agriculturally aware, they totally understood that for a vine to grow, you gotta give it some kind of structure, some kind of trellis. Or in other words, helpful conditions to guard against decay and to guide life, to protect and propel, to, to cut off and cultivate, to prune and to put in place. And one of the ancient ways to interpret what Jesus is inviting us to do here is to arrange our lives so the vine would flourish. So we'd be a faithful branch on the tree of Jesus. That actually the best way to abide is to make ourselves available through, come back to the sermon series title, our rhythms. Through what we do in the mundane. I love what um, Richard Foster says about the mundane. He says, the discovery of God lies in the daily and the ordinary not in the spectacular and the heroic. If we cannot find God in the routines of home and shop, we might not find him at all. And so as a church, what we've done is we've created this resource. And Aaron, just to my right here, has done a lot of the creative work on this. And we're thinking, you know what would be awesome? Is if every single person in our church could finish this year and say, oh, I grew as a disciple of Jesus this year. Now, when we talk about that, we're not saying growing as a disciple gets God's approval. That's not even a question. We're talking about responding to what God's done in Christ to win us to himself and out of that relationship, follow him. And so we're like, man, wouldn't it be awesome if all of us took concrete, practical steps in our discipleship this year? And so we put this little book together. It's a little resource that introduces us to the concept of rule of life. Now, rule of life is not a series of rules that we obey to get God's approval. It's like a trellis, which is actually the word from which the word rule comes from. A trellis that will guide our lives and help us think through the intentional ways that our calendar sets the conditions for our abiding in Jesus. And so in it, we've got one for every single person in this room. In it, you'll see a little bit of an introduction to a rule of life, gives you a helpful definition, walks you through it. And then the whole resource actually just acts like a bit of a tutorial and workbook for us. And right in the heart of it, it's sort of just like a way by which we can think through our lives. And so you've got our schedule on the the left side, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. And then you've got a host of categories that we think are really meaningful that make up the categories of our normal mundane life. What are they? Abiding, that's our relationship with Jesus. Relationships with others, gospel and hospitality, and work and money. Now, there's two ways to see this. One is deeply unhelpful. The other is incredibly powerful for your discipleship. If you see this as something you have to do, you're doing it wrong. This is not something that makes God's love available to you, it makes us available to God's love. It's not something that gets us God's approval, it's something that increases our experience of God's approval. Why? Because it contends against all the ways by which culture and our calendar and our habits can deform us and puts in place ways by which we can step after formation with Jesus. And so I'd invite you, if you're here this afternoon, and you wanna be intentional with your discipleship, grab one of these resources on the way out. And the goal would be not that you fill it with things to do, but to use it as a way, as a lens to think through, actually, what do you do? And how does what we do shape and form us? And how is that helpful and unhelpful? Some of you might say, I'm busy enough as it is. This actually won't ask you to do, this actually might cause you to do less with your year. Some of you might say, I've just never done anything like this before, and does this mean we can't expect God to miraculously change us? No. No. This is just the invitation of Jesus through John 15 and in a practical way in this present moment for us to be intentional with our discipleship. Because here's the bottom line I'll finish with this if the band can come up behind me. Change in the Christian life is possible, but it's not inevitable change in the Christian life is possible, but it's not inevitable. And when there's a watching world starving for people to become like Jesus, and there's this internal reality we all have as individuals, that question like, oh, is this as good as it gets, you know? The invitation is, oh no, there's always more. There's always more of God, always more as we apprentice after Jesus, more of His joy, more of His peace, more of His love, more of His life. And so can I invite us to stand? As a community, we want to rally around the notion that who we're becoming is way more important than what we do. And that there'd be some of us at the end of this year who actually look back and say, I changed. Not because anyone was staring there and sort of pointing the finger at you and saying you needed to. This is all a conversation we get to have with God individually. Like, but what would it look like if that were to happen? And so I just want to put the call out to us as a community this afternoon. Maybe you're staring down the barrel of a new year and you're like, I would, I'd love to grow in my discipleship this year. I'd actually love to take concrete steps. I've been inspired in years gone past but actually I really wanna see change in my life. Maybe there's an area that God's put his finger on, even as I've been talking, or maybe there's a habit you wanna cultivate. For me, I'm just gonna be honest, I want the thing that marks my year to be a growth in prayer. Now I say that not because I'm amazing at it. Like I, I pastor a church, I'm, like, I'm not good at prayer. I'm just gonna own that for a moment. And I don't wanna get good at prayer just so I can get good at prayer. I just want more of God, you know what I mean? Like what an adventure, that sounds awesome, let's do that. What is it for you? What do you need to cultivate? What do you need to cut off? What do you need to prune? What's God wanna do in your life? And so I just wanna invite us to close our eyes. We're gonna step into some worship. And I wanna invite you, if, if you wanna see genuine change in your life this year, I just wanna ask you to raise your hand. Thank you. You wanna grow as a disciple of Jesus this year? Thank you, I see those hands, there's hands all around the room. And in putting up your hand, on one level you're saying, cool, when it comes to the mundane of Monday, I'm gonna take concrete steps to use all of my calendar for the glory of God. But You know what else you're doing? You're making yourself available to the miraculous even now, that God would deposit something, impart something to you now by His Spirit, because of which you'd leave here different. We believe in the miraculous and the mundane. And right now I wanna pray that God would meet us and that the desires of our heart represented by our hands actually come into fruition as we experience our year together. Is that okay? Let me do that right now. My hands are raised too. And Father, we just surrender as a community. You see all the hands raised and you know what's going on in the hearts of those who don't. And Father, we ask, would we see real change this year? Not so we can pat ourselves on the back not so we can feel good about keeping spiritual disciplines ticked off, but Lord, so we'd become more like your son and that would be joy and life and peace in the Holy Spirit for us. We wanna be made more like your son, more into the people that you're calling us to be. And Father, I pray that as we finish this year, we'd be able to look back and say, yeah, I I actually, I worked against that sin in my life and I'm a new person because of it. Or me in the partnership of the Holy Spirit, we actually saw cultivating a prayer life we're a different person because of it. And so we just ask, Lord, will we be changed this year? Would you, by your Spirit, work in us? Help us not settle, but come into the fullness of what you invite us into. For we ask it in Jesus' name. just with everyone's eyes closed still, I just want to make one last invitation for us. It's simple. We do it every single single week because we know there's people in the room right now who aren't thinking about discipleship. They're thinking about who's this Jesus guy and maybe I want to start following him. And so as I've been speaking, you've heard about this Jesus guy, the one who forgives you of your past and gives you new life, sets you free, saves you from something and saves you for something. I want to give you the invitation just to respond to him in conversation right now. And that's really simple. It's just saying to God, sorry for being separate from you. Thank you for what you've done in Jesus. Please help me follow you. And so if you want to respond to that invitation, perhaps for the very first time, I just want to invite you to raise your hand nice and high so I can see and I'd love to pray with you. i just going to leave the space open. If that's you, raise your hand nice and high. leave the space open just a little bit more. Awesome. Well, hey, this is something we pray every single week as a community because there's no end to the degree to which we can say to God, sorry, thank you and please. And so as a community, why don't we pray this just as we round out our time and step into worship. Pray this after me if you feel comfortable. God, sorry for living separate from you in so many ways. Thank you that you chased me down and that you're reaching out to me even now. Please come into my life and fill me and help me become more like Jesus.
0: Thanks again for listening to the New Life podcast. Hey, if that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer for anything from one of our team, you can contact us at hello at church.nu or you can reach out to us on our Instagram or our Facebook page. Pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.